Today I'm joined by Carl Hebenstreit. Carl's passionate about optimizing employee engagement and he's going to be telling us more about the use of Enneagram in organizational settings. He's the author of a book on the how and why taking care of business with the Enneagram. Carl, thank you very much for joining us here today. It's my pleasure, Nicola. Thank you for having me. Now, I have to let you in on a secret. You very kindly offered to do my Enneagram. When I am offered a test of this sort, I pass it to my husband. (laughs) But I am not entirely sure that he's ever really seriously evaluated any of the ones that I've sent through to him. (laughs) And I, I said to him, would you like to take a psychometric test or do one of these personality assessment things? Because that would help me to understand you a bit better too. At which point I get a stare, which sort of says it all. (laughs) And, And I guess that is something that is true across the board, that there are people who are more willing and more interested than others in getting into the nooks and crannies of their inner personality traits and their vulnerabilities, weaknesses, and strengths. That aside, I'm absolutely delighted to talk to you on this subject, which you will, of course, be very adept at addressing, given your background, which I'm just going to briefly cover here for our listeners, because you've been, or are indeed, an executive coach, an international speaker, a leadership and organization development consultant with more than 25 years of experience in organizational development, HR resources, large global businesses across multiple sectors. This in turn puts you in a really good position when it comes to understanding that the ability to take on another person's point of view to see things, I guess, from a different lens of perspective is a vital part of getting anything done successfully. And for this, the Enneagram is a really unique, in fact, an effective route to open people up to other ways of thinking. Right. So let's try and unpack the basic framework so that people understand the Enneagram approach. Right. But I, I'd also like to see if there are any areas that you might like to further expand upon on mm-hmm. how and why it's important to understand one's own personality type. So great points, great questions, Nicola. Thank you. And I want to go back to what you're talking about with your partner about his reluctance or unwillingness to to take a personality inventory. And I like to say that it's all about readiness. So even though he may be reluctant or unwilling right now, that could change in a day, a week, a month, a year, 10 years, whatever it is, because we're all part of our own development and growth journey. And we all become ready for different things at different times. And sometimes we're not ready because the pain of change is perceived to be greater than the pain of staying the same. So if everything's going great and he doesn't need to know anything about why he's doing the things he's doing or why there may be different ways of doing things or looking at things, then um, there's no reason to change. And, And that's true of every single one of us. And the other thing I wanted to say is that 
it's difficult for everyone to do this because we've been indoctrinated into something called the golden rule. Everyone's been giving us the golden rule from, from our birth, our, our religions, our, we see everywhere they say gold is so important and the golden rule is treat others the way that you want to be treated. So we're automatically thinking inward. We're thinking about ourselves and not really taking on those other perspectives or perceptions. So it's difficult because we have to unlearn that because it assumes that everyone wants to be treated the same way. It assumes that everyone has the same ideology, the same preferences, the same politics, the same religious principles, the same values, the same morals, the same ethics, and we all know that that's not true. So we need to upgrade our, our thinking, our mindset from the golden rule to the platinum rule, which is more about treating others the way that they want to be treated. And that's how a system like the Enneagram can really help us with that, because it helps us to see what we think is the way to look at the world. And it gives us an insight into why we think that. And then it also allows us to understand that, oh, wow, there are eight other major core ways that are different from what our main perspective is. And not only do they exist, but they exist within us. And other people in our lives and in the world are going to have those one of those other eight ones as their core. Some of them may have the same one that we do as our uh, at their core. And wouldn't it be great to really know where, which perspective or which worldview they're using so that we can work better with them and understand them and ultimately integrate all of those eight other perspectives into our own so we have the true reality of what the world really is. Right. So what you're saying is that the starting point is that you need to unlearn the golden rule, this lens of perspective or compass that shapes who we are how we think about ourselves, how we interface with the world, and that has been evolving and building since we come into being because yeah. they do say that there is an influence that happens in yeah. in the womb even. That, that aside, um, you jumped into the eight other personality types. Could you just talk us through very briefly what these are uh yeah absolutely thank you it'll be a very quick introduction to the the nine different styles of the enneagram and i'm going to separate them into centers because again remember we all have access to all nine of these some more than others and we particularly have one core and that core type that drives our, our entire lives, it's with us for our entire lives, and it motivates us for our entire lives, is going to be in one of these centers. So you've heard about leadership with head, heart, and gut, right? So we, there's a heart center, there's a head center, and there's a gut or action or body center. So there are three styles that fit into each of these three centers. So a total of three times three is nine. So if you look at it from the, let's start with the... Um, head center, the thinking styles. So you have the five, the six, and the seven reside in the, the head center or the thinking style center. And one of the styles is going to be very, very objective in its focus, looking at taking in and assimilating all the different data that's out there and making it make sense, making it into information that is relevant, that is predicting of the future. And the goal for that type five that objective type five 
is to, to really collect this information, to predict, have these predictive models so that they can be prepared and not look foolish. They want to make sure that they know everything that's out there and not look foolish and be prepared for that. Then we get from the objective, we get into a little bit more of a, a type that's looking at the worst case scenario planning. So that's the type six, the loyal skeptic. And it's all about looking at dangers, possible dangers that could happen and how to prepare for those dangers so that they can be safe, secure, and comfortable. And they're looking for their tribe. They're looking for this tribe that's going to keep them safe so they can belong to this tribe and, and be safe, comfortable, and secure, and be very loyal to it. And then the flip side of the, the always looking at the worst possible case scenario is the type seven, which is looking at the best possible case scenario. So positively reframing everything, looking for opportunities and options and, and ways of having fun and exciting visionary. So those are the three thinking styles. And some people will relate to one of these as their core style. So that's the, the head center. Okay, so Carl, there are three, of course. Let, let's talk about the heart next. Yeah, the heart center is interesting because we have the types two, three, and four there. And each of them has a different take on accessing feelings. So the twos are going to be doing it by focusing on others and having an intuition about what other people really need and want and, and delivering that to them uh, so that they're liked. The threes are going to access their heart from a perspective of, I know what I need, I know what other people need, but I also know what the goal is, and I'm going to get to that goal. So they might be suppressing their feelings a little bit more so and the feelings of others in order to get to the goal. And the four is going to be all about the feelings. The four is going to be all about feeling their own feelings, feeling other people's feelings, being very in tune with emotions and very empathic. So that includes our center for the heart. And then, of course, we have the center for the action or gut or body. And those are the types eight, nine, and one. Eight is going to take immediate action. They are our boss, protector, general. And nine is going to be a little bit more taking action from a perspective of let's, let's keep the peace, let's keep the harmony, let's mediate this, we don't want conflict, let's not jump in right away, let's consider the whole system and the whole situation, and that's the value that they bring. And the type one is going to take action from the standpoint of what's the right thing to do in this situation. You hear a lot in business about gut instinct. Is heart stronger than people realize? Or is there still a, a tendency towards head and gut in business? That's a great question. I've worked with a lot of different teams and there's a thing called the center of expression. So regardless of what center our core type is in, we may be expressing it through a different center. And of course, business is very heavily reliant on action. We want results. We want, you know, especially for in for-profit organizations, there need to be business results. There are goals. We need to achieve them. We need to make the money. So you tend to see a lot of reliance and a lot of expression in that action center. And um, a lot of times I've also dealt, dealt with different groups that are in the research and development industry in pharmaceuticals, and they tend to be heavily thinking centered. So you might see a lot of thinking that doesn't necessarily get to the action. And it's rare that you have a fully heart-centric expressed team. And again, we want to integrate those. We want a balance of all three. So we want to make sure that there's equal balance between thinking, feeling, and action. When it comes to 
integration. Mm -hmm. Is there anything to say at this point about the integration of head, heart and gut? Or how do you approach integration? I was fascinated to see that uh, you refer to it in several places. Absolutely. And you picked up on a very important topic. Integration is critical. And you also picked up on something about the roots of the Enneagram, which is where it was originally used for spiritual development. So that's where the integration comes in. And ultimately, that is our goal. Our goal is to integrate everything that there is out there, all the different perspectives, especially from a diversity um, point of view, is how do we understand and integrate diverse perspectives, diverse points of view, the diverse values that exist out there and integrate them into our own for a more full human experience so that we can be better human beings and better leaders. So absolutely, we do need to integrate the head, the heart, and the gut as well, because some people may be relying, I mean, you look at some people sometimes and you say, wow, they're, they're very heady. They're just very a thinking style. They're, they really never get out of their heads. And then you see other people that are always moving action, action, action all the time. You're like, wow, that's a very action-oriented person. And maybe they're not thinking about things or even considering the feelings of others and the impact on others in all that they're doing. And then you see other people that you say, wow, these people are totally in their feelings and never really move out of their feelings. So they might be stuck in their feelings and not being more objective in their thinking style and, and even taking action. So we do need to integrate and balance all those three centers in order to be effective and, and not just be in one all the time because that's going to cause us to be ineffective and not uh, be able to relate to the world. So you're absolutely right about integration being important. I think integration and development and growth in general are lifelong journeys, and there is a pain that's going to be associated with growth. There is a pain of, of understanding, of acceptance, of accepting the things that we don't want to be or the things that, are, that we're not proud of that are part of us. And taking those into consideration, learning to love them, and finding ways of making them useful in our lives and not shunning all those parts away and integrating them into our whole being. So, yes, that's a very painful process. And it, it is a, a, a lifelong journey that never ends. We will never come to a point and say, oh, I'm fully integrated now. Everything's great. That just does not exist. It's an aspiration. It's definitely aspirational. We are human beings, and that integration journey is lifelong and aspirational. It, it will never be achieved, which doesn't mean to say that we should just give up and say, forget it, I'm a human being. I'm not going to ever be fully integrated, so I'm not going to even bother with it because we should look to better ourselves as much as possible. And of course, when life is going seemingly well, we express our personality types a certain way. Yes. When we're under pressure, things become a lot more complex. How can the Enneagram help us to understand how to navigate these, this more complex emotional territory? That's a great question, and it's an absolute perfect use of the Enneagram system in helping to develop ourselves. So natural state, core state, we have our core type, and when we look at the Enneagram symbol, there are two lines that are attached to it that go to other types somewhere else in the circle. So, for example, we'll use the 369 triangle in the middle. 
for type three, the type three has a line that goes to six and also a line that goes to nine. And one of these lines is called the stress or the stretch point, and that's the point to nine. And the other point for the three, all threes do this, is the comfort or release line, and that's the point to six. Now, all types will have different numbers that they go to, or points that they go to, or energy that they go to. And that's under stress or strain, when we can't control it, when we're on automatic pilot, we will go to the low side of that number. So the three, in this case that we're talking about, will go to the low side of nine under stress. And under comfort, we go to the high side of the number or the energy or point that the line attaches us to. So in this case, the three will go to the high side of six. So when we're in automatic pilot, that just happens automatically. When we're not thinking about it, when we're not trying to control it, when we're not conscious or aware of, of ourselves. Ultimately, the goal for integration is to say, who cares about these lines? These lines are great, and I will use them for development. However, I always want to go to the high point. I always want to go above the line. I always want to go to the healthy version, the integrated version of each of these numbers, regardless of where they are on the system. So how can I make sure that I set myself up for success by always going to the high side of each numbers and that I'm in control of it, that it's not an automatic response? That's very interesting. Thank you for elaborating. And if I can stay with this resilience theme, you were talking about stretch points earlier. Mm -hmm. And in business, we have stretch points in terms of challenges which mm -hmm. in turn plays to the importance of resilience and being able yes. to take that stretch moment and not, not snap. Um, yes. To conclude, you mentioned to me McKinsey's report on the state of organizations 2023, mm -hmm. and I went and checked that out. Thank you for that. So just to summarize, what they are trying to do with this report is pinpoint the most important shifts that organizations are grappling with and provide some ideas and suggestions about how to approach this. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, they start off with the importance of strengthening resilience. Right. Can you talk to us about the strengthening of resilience from an Enneagram perspective? Absolutely. Thank you for, for that question. And the other interesting thing that I just want to say, that McKinsey report with the top 10 uh, shifts transforming organizations, most of those top 10 could be easily addressed and helped by the use of the Enneagram and the installation of the Enneagram in, in application to each of those challenges or shifts. So uh, let's look at resilience for a second. Some types are naturally more resilient than others. It's just the, their wiring, their hard wiring. And there's been a study by uh, Integrative Enneagram Solutions correlating the big five factors with the Enneagram. And they found that if we're looking at the emotionally stable slash neurotic versus neurotic st um, scale on the big five, we'll see the type threes, the fives, and the sevens tend to be more emotionally static, shrugging off stress, more optimistic, relaxed, responsive, and confident when it's a stressful situation, if you want to look at it that way. 
the more quote unquote neurotic, and that's not the right word, but that's the word that the big five uses. So we're going to use it. The more neurotic, which are emotionally expressive, worrying about things, sensitive to emotions, dramatic, have deep feelings and passion and vigilant, would tend to be more along the lines of the type fours and sixes primarily, and then the ones and twos after that. So you'll see that they might not be as resilient necessarily if you use that operational definition from the big five. Now, there are other components to resilience, of course, uh, openness to change, um, being creative, open to new experiences, tackling new challenges, abstract thinking, conceptual, imaginative, radical, and appreciating beauty. That openness part is, again, calling out the type threes, um, and the fives are there too, and then the sevens are there as well, and then the eights are there as well. So some, some eights might also have a little bit more resilience there too. Nines, in this sense, are going to be much more traditional. So they're not going to be as resilient, as open to change. They're going to want to have the status quo. They're not going to want the, the harmony disrupted. So if we know what our core type is, and we understand our initial hardwiring or resistance to, to being resilient, since we know this about ourselves, we find ways of saying, I get this about myself, and I know that if I embrace this and engage in it, I will, for example, for the type nine, I will eventually get to a new new normal, a new harmony, a new peace. So let's do this and let's find a way to, to get this as fast as possible so we can get this new harmony. We have to embrace this conflict, this difference, this change, this disruption, and be resilient to get to that point. So if we know this about ourselves, we, we can figure out what it can take to prepare ourselves, to brace ourselves, and to act in a way that's going to get us back to what we need but yet still get through that turmoil, that challenge, that change, that disruption. Tell me, do you ever look at the newspapers or, or, or the news, whether it's talking about global or local political issues or business issues and say, wow, that, that leader really has great resilience or this figurehead is really integrating a huge amount in a short period of time. Quite unfair, as you haven't obviously had the opportunity to reach out to them and to ask them to do this. But can you sort of get an instinctive feeling? Can you share any names even with us of people who you feel as leaders have really um, got the skills and capabilities to be a very resilient leader? So that's a great question, and it really gets to the point that we really don't know what's going on with people internally. So, and that's the, the golden rule versus platinum rule, right? The platinum rule is we have no idea what's going on with them, so we need to ask them. We need to see what's really going on under the surface. Is it that whole metaphor of the swan or the duck that's swimming in the lake and it's just so gracefully going across and looks so calm and cool and collected? But underneath the water, there's all this paddling, this furious paddling that's going on. So we don't know what's really going on for them. Are they truly resilient? Is it just a facade? What's, what's, what's really going on underneath the surface? So since we are never able to, to know what's really going on with someone, what's really going on at their root, until they tell us, it's impossible to, to pick someone that's, that's, wow, this person is really resilient or has, is showing resilience. It's, it's funny. We always say that there's a tendency for some people to just keep having hardships and they just keep getting through hardships over and over and over and over and over again. And so 
if we use that as an operational re uh, definition for resilience, we'll see, wow, those people are re really resilient. They're able to get through all this. But it's also how they're interpreting each different situation that comes to them, right? And how we're interpreting them, too, is, is a hardship or this is something that's showing them up to be resilient in order to get through it. But you know what struck me when you were talking is that people who are willing to do the journey through the development of their own awareness comes with that compassion, mm -hmm. insight, yes. looking at things from different lenses of perspective. This leader may not be a tyrant for the reasons we think, and it adds additional layers of understanding. And I, I think back to the book uh, that this is important, is it not? The, that as one increases one's own personal awareness, that you get a vital point of view of, of perspective to understand where other people are coming from, as well as understanding yourself. Absolutely. And the next step to that is integrating that, understanding it so well, understanding so well where they're coming from and their reasoning for it and their, their perspective for it, their values for it, that you can also adopt or integrate them into your own worldview if, if it makes sense. And it's not pure evil or anything like that <laughs> or contradicts your, your core being. It's important to take the lessons from all of those nine perspectives and integrate them so that we have a full understanding of every situation without going to it with bias and with this, these implicit biases that we have based on our, our own experiences, our own learnings, but now opening ourselves up to all of the learnings and all of the experiences as, as much as we can. Carl Hebenstreit, thank you so much for joining us here today. So Carl is the author of How and Why Taking Care of Business with the Enneagram. It's in its third edition now and available on Amazon. We will put a link below. Thank you, Nicola. My pleasure to be here.